0: Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources.
1: John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word.
0: There is a set of questions that I've noticed tend to crop up every time there's a major event in my life. I've noticed it for years and years and years. Whenever there is a major significant happening, this question just always kind of bubbles to the surface. I remember when Cheryl and I first got engaged, the question, the the heart of the question bubbled to the surface, and that was this, what will become of us? I've asked her, she said yes, and then immediately the question is, what will become of us? Where will we go? What will we do? What will life be like for us together? Uh, What will we make of ourselves? How might God use us? Those were always the kinds of questions. When we got married, the questions came again. What will become of us? What will we be? Where will we go? It's the question of the future. I remember when our son was born, our first son, I remember holding him in my arms and looking down into his face, and those same questions came back. What is gonna become of this little guy? What will he do with his life? What will he make of himself? Where will he go? Um, same with my daughters. What, what will she become? Where, where will the path of her life take her? How might God use her? You have this bundle in your arms of the future. You cannot help but ask yourself that question, those questions. Every time it seems to me that I, I uh, I read the news. I go online and read the news. One of the questions, and you probably do this as well, that, that comes to your mind so easily, so freely, so quickly is, what's going to become of us? What's going to become of us? Where are we going? What are we doing? Have you ever wondered that? What are we doing? Where are we going? What, what, what is this? What, what does the future hold? That is the question of questions. And it is constantly pressing because we desperately want to know what lay there in the future. Now, the passage we've read for this morning, we looked at last week and we said it's important for a number of reasons. We said it's important because this is the very first miracle that that launched Jesus' public ministry and mission. It kind of set the tone. We said as well that this uh, miracle at at Cana, this miracle of the uh, wedding that had run out of wine that found its wine again is also critical because it tells us in very clear terms what it was that Jesus was seeking to accomplish, what it was that God was after when he sent his son. And we said, we, we uh, after looking at this passage, that what Jesus is constantly working for, ultimately, finally, is our joy. Is our joy. But there's a third, there's a third great gift that comes as a consequence of this, of this story. And it is simply this. It actually gives us or points us to God's answers to these persistent questions we're we're always asking. What will become of us? What will become of our children? What will become of our world? And in this world where joy fades and death is sure to follow, what is left for us? So, I want us to come back to this passage because we really want to see, before we leave it, how this passage answers these questions about the future. Now, let's go over what we've seen already last week and uh, walk through the story again so we can set the context. John reports that Jesus is about 30 years old and, and he's right at the start of his public ministry. Jesus shows up as an invited guest at a wedding with his newly formed band of disciples. At this point, there's just five of them and they're with him. Jesus uh, comes to an obscure village named Cana in Galilee. And, and in this little village, like every other little village in Jesus' day, a wedding is a huge deal for, for everyone who lives there. Nothing significant really ever happens in these villages. This is the most significant thing, so this is a huge deal. The guests and the families are feasting, and they're dancing across the courtyard in the groom's home in beautiful embroidered clothing. The uh, house is filled with music. The house is filled with laughter. Uh, But then into this joyous circumstance comes the unthinkable. Just as the celebration is in full swing, someone discovers that the wine has run out. And for the bride and the groom and for their families, this is a disaster from which they can never recover socially. It is one of those times in life, situations in life, you cannot fix it. It means loss of family honor and family status in a shame and honor culture. For the Jews, too, it it meant still more. Uh, The the, the wine, of course, represented the groom's ability to provide for his family for sure. But it also, it, it symbolized God's blessing. It symbolized the joy that God's blessing brings. And so it's as if God's blessing has somehow been removed suddenly from this wedding and so Mary comes to Jesus and she comes to him as her firstborn son. Joseph is out of the picture and she asks him basically to fix the situation. She's not asking for a miracle. As we said last week, she's never seen him do a miracle She doesn't know he can do miracles. That's not what she's asking for. But she comes to him asking him simply to do something to deal with the crisis of a wedding that has run out of wine and is in danger of losing its joy. And at first, Jesus disagrees. He says to his mother, what does this have to do with me? This is not my my deal. This is not your deal. My time hasn't come. But Mary, like every good mother, is absolutely persistent to the point of being insistent and she simply responds to him by not saying a word. She turns to the servants and just says, do whatever he tells you. And off she goes, leaving this massive problem with Jesus. Well, Jesus decides to do something. He decides to act. He sees six large water jars available of oh, that pretty good size. Together hold about 150 gallons of water, the kind that uh, the Jews used for ceremonial purification. It was important for them in, before every big event to, to wash their hands as a symbol, as a reminder of their sin, of their need of God. Before they celebrate, they, they needed purification. Jesus says to the servants, fill the uh, jars with water, and they do, and ordinary water goes in and extraordinary wine comes out. The kind of wine everybody would buy if they could afford it, the kind of wine everyone would serve, and if they served it, they would serve it first, they would never serve it last. Jesus sends this new wine to the master of the feast to taste and approve, and he's surprised and he's delighted. He gets an unexpected joy, he goes, Oh my. He calls the bridegroom over and he says, I don't know what you've done or why you've done it, but you've saved the best to last. I have a feeling the, the uh, bridegroom tasted it and said, oh my. Maybe he said, how can I afford this? I don't know, but oh my. And so we have this wedding where the bride and the groom, their families, and all the guests have an unexpected joy. And you and I have an unexpected joy that comes from a a, a great story with a nice miracle that makes a big difference, about uh, a miracle that makes a big difference in a little place for two ordinary families. And immediately the story brings draws out of us a couple of responses. First of all, it, it it draws out this response. It says, yes, that's exactly that is exactly the way life is. Life can be so good and there can be so much joy, but inevitably your, your wedding runs out of wine. Inevitably, joy fades. It degrades, and you find yourself wanting an upgrade. That is exactly the way life is. This is, a, this is a true-to-life story. It's exactly the way it is. But at the same time, as you make your way through the story, you not only say, yeah, that's the way life is, but you go, that's exactly the way life ought to be. There ought to be someone who can step into a situation and fix it when joy runs out, when things seem impossible. I love this story. You can't help but love this story, can you? To say, yes, I, I understand what it's like for a wedding to run out of wine. I, I, I understand what it's like for joy to fade. How many times have I wanted somebody like Jesus at, at the wedding at Cana, who would step in and take my failing joy? And restore it again. Yes, that's the way the world is, but this is also a story of the way the world really ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. There ought to be somebody who can step in and make it right when nobody else can. That's the way it ought to be. And of course, that is exactly exactly part of the message of the story of the wedding at Cana. Here we have a world where joy is real, but it doesn't last because something's gone wrong with us. And here we have a world where someone, we need someone to find a way to fix what's gone wrong so that joy not only stays, but actually gets better as we go. When Jesus acts here and he gives himself to the rescue of this wedding that starts well but runs out of wine, he's actually showing us something so very important about himself. He's showing us that he has come to do more than just solve the problem of a wedding and it's wine. He's come to solve the problem of a world and it's joy. By this story, we learn that in all things and in every way, Jesus has come working for our joy. We learn that to have lives where joy lives and stays, we need a place where sin in us and its brokenness are dealt with. We need a place where purification is done once and for all and celebration comes and stays. We learn to have this place, we need a person. We need a Savior. We need a rescuer, just like the wedding at Cana had Jesus. Jesus shows us here then that he has come to be just that person for us. And if Jesus is this person, then it pushes us to ask one more question of this story before we move on. And that is this. When does such a place come to be a reality if Jesus is that person? When does such a place come to be a reality if Jesus is that person? When do we get to that place where joy lives and stays. When? Where? How? Now I want you to notice that the, how the story of the wedding at Cana not only serves to point us to the world as it is and the world as we want it to be, but points us to a picture of the world as it will be because of Jesus one day. And I love this. This is the best part of this entire passage. Are you ready? We're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Look with me at, at the world as it is because of Jesus. This John says, the first of his signs, verse 11, Jesus did it Canaan, Galilee, and he manifested his glory. In other words, he put on display his goodness and the power that he had to show it and to carry out his goodness. And his disciples, the scripture says, believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So John's writing as a firsthand observer of this story, he writes and reports not only what he's seen and heard, but also what the miracle of Cana, at Cana, ultimately accomplished. Notice Jesus tells us that after the wedding party was over, Jesus, his mother, his disciples and brothers go to Capernaum and stay for a few days. What a, what a trip home that must have been. I've tried to imagine what that would be like. Here the disciples going, can you believe this? Can you believe it? I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I, I mean, can you believe it? No, I can't believe it. Can you believe it, Andrew? I can't believe it. John, can you believe it? No, I can't believe it. Nobody can believe it. We can't believe it. Did we really see what we saw? Yeah, we saw what we saw. I can't believe it. All at the same time, they're traveling with with Mary and Jesus' brothers and they're going, can you believe what what we just saw? Our brother. Can you believe that? Something's not right here. I mean, we grew up with him. He's just a carpenter. The disciples, we're told in this passage, actually believed, put their faith in Jesus. Later, John will tell us that his brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe. It's like, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like it. This is not that. He's just one of us. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. Here's what John says, though. For them, for the disciples, for Jesus' mother, for Jesus' brothers, for you, for me, for them, for all of us, this event at Cana came as a sign. And this is key. As we pointed out last week, John clarifies that the miracle Jesus performed is not just a miracle, but is the first of his signs in verse 11, he says. And this means that, watch now, the miracle is a pointer, it's a signifier of something greater. What is more, when John says that this sign is first, the first that Jesus did, he's not just saying it's first chronologically. It was one in the first in a series of signs, which it was, but he's actually saying more than that. He's saying it's first in, the term, in terms of being essential or key to understanding what the Son of God, the Word made flesh, is actually about as he's come to dwell among us. This first sign is meant to show with with a small wedding the greater things that God intends in Jesus in the future. And now if you think about it with me just for a minute, one of the things that strikes you is that in the key movements of history that the Bible records for us, in in those most prominent junctures in the story of the Bible— The Son of God and weddings are are especially prominent. Uh, In the beginning, when the Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, John 1, 3, when he made Adam and Eve, he also made and gave to them marriage. And in a very real sense, Genesis in the early chapter shows us creation crowned with a wedding, the very first wedding. The wedding was small to be sure, The uh, guest list, though, was unmatched because God was there. That's quite a guest list. The feast was perfect, unlimited. Everything needed was provided, and nothing ran out. Joy in its fullness was everywhere at the first wedding. But then came the fall, and the perfect first humans and the perfect world and the perfect first wedding all became part of a condition where the wine and joy always run out. The story of the Bible is that God has a plan. And God refuses to give up on humanity. He refuses to give up on the world. He refuses to give up on our weddings Creation led to a fall, but God committed to redemption and restoration so that we find here in our passage, the creator who came at first to create now comes to his fallen creation, but this time he comes as a redeemer, as a rescuer, as a savior. He comes, as John already told us in in chapter one, verse nine, so that everyone who receives him, who believe in his name are given the right to become his, his children, children of God, and have And begin new lives. As this redeemer comes, he comes to do the work of final purification. He does that final purification at the cross. So that there can be this ongoing celebration and joy afterward. At Cana, what we have is an imperfect wedding feast made whole. Everything needed is provided. And what has run out is no longer running out. And as this story is told, as this joy is restored, there is a fuller joy being pointed to. So not only is Christ's work at creation crowned with a wedding, but Christ's work of redemption is actually launched with the wedding. This wedding at Cana points, though, to something more. Christ's work of restoration is launched with a wedding as well a final wedding and this is where the miracle at cana has its greatest significance for us you see the old testament and the new tell us of a great restoration of all things that is going to happen that is still to come we need it humanity lives groaning for things to change we're constantly groaning for things to change We're groaning for things to change in us. We're groaning for things to change in our circumstances, in our families, in our world. We're always groaning. We live groaning for the time of the first wedding to come back when feasts are perfect, every need is met, nothing runs out, and joy is everywhere. But everywhere we look now, our history and the present give us a record of crime and war and disease and terror. And it seems that all of our life stories and all of our joys ultimately come to nothing. And and life has no meaning. Everywhere we look, we can sense something has gone wrong. And whatever that something is, it keeps going wrong. And so we live our lives groaning. Groaning for change. The Bible tells us we're not the only ones who are groaning for change. The Bible describes creation as groaning for it as well. Romans eight says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, until this very day. God made Adam and Eve caretakers of the earth at the beginning and when they fell, all creation fell with them and all have lost joy. And that joy has been replaced by what the Bible calls the curse. We're groaning, creation is groaning. Longing for a restoration to the way things were. You know the biggest problem with uh, creation today is not creation. The biggest problem with creation today is what we human beings have done with it. Creation groan. The Bible goes on to say believers are are also especially groaning for change. Romans 8.23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the Spirit living in us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The miracle at Cana shows us something so important, so powerful in this tiny little village, in this action of Christ that God refuses to give up on his plans for us, for our earth, or for our joy. He simply will not give up. He made us. He knows us. He knows that our true joy actually lies in him. And this means that there is an end that is better than what we see now coming. It means a redemption that leads to a rebirth and finally comes to a restoration. And that's why 2 Peter 3 says, we we live according to his promise. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of this redemption, salvation, rebirth and restoration ultimately find their apex in a resurrection that leads to a wedding, a final wedding after which there will be no more weddings ever. The Old Testament prophesies it. John the Baptist talked about it. Jesus affirmed it and John himself describes it as we come to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. To understand entirely what this last picture looks like, the world as it will be because of Jesus, we need to look briefly at all three. We, We need to look at some prophecies. We need to look at some confirmations, and we need to look at the description, all right? So my proposal for this morning is that you and I spend some time in the Old Testament, come back to the beginning of the New Testament, and finish our time at the close of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. How does that sound? Does that sound all right? Does that sound good? All right. Is everybody in? Is everybody ready to go? Well, let's go. Let's look first of all at the prophecy, shall we? Let's look at the prophecies. Hosea 2, verses 16 to 20. In several passages from the Old Testament prophets, God does this. He depicts himself as the bridegroom of his people. And his people are betrothed or engaged to him as as his people. And by it, what God is doing in, in each of these prophecies we're going to look at, God's showing that he doesn't just want a relationship with us as creator to creation or as king to subject. Now, he is the creator. We are his creation. He is the king. We are his subjects. But he wants something more. He wants with us a love relationship as profound as the love relationship between a husband and a wife. So, for example, the prophet Hosea records God saying in Hosea 2, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will make for creation a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will... For them and for you, abolish the bow, abolish the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. There is coming. There is coming a day when everything will be changed. There's coming a day when there will be no more mass murder. There will be no more howitzers sounding in Ukraine. There will be no more mass graves. There will be no more bloodshed on this planet. There is coming a day. God is saying, I'm going to say to the animals, you can rest now. You can rest now because I'm going to get these human beings straightened out. Have you ever felt like King Frederick of Prussia? Have you ever felt like him? Probably you have. One day he was so fed up with dealing with people, he said, the more I know people, the more I love my dog. I think he's got something there. My dog is always happy to see me when I come, always sad to see me, see me leave. He never leaves me, he never forsakes me, he always curls up right next to me and he just parks. He's never said a bad thing about me. Not one time has he gossiped, not one time has he criticized, not one time has he condemned. He's always got his tail wagging and he's always happy. I like my dog. Sometimes I feel like the king of Prussia. I suspect you do too, even if you don't like dogs. The day's coming. God says, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice And in steadfast love and mercy, I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to engage you as mine, and I'm going to make you like I am. And you will be righteous, and you will be just, and you will have a steadfast love, and you will be able to see and have mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, God says, and you, and this is the most important part, you will know me. You will know the Lord. There will be a deep, intimate understanding between us. I will know you intimately, and you will know me intimately. And in that knowledge, that is where real joy comes to be found. Elsewhere in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8, Isaiah prophesies a great wedding feast for this God who betrothes his people. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all all kinds of peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up. I love this picture. He will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations, all of the covering of the curse, all of the covering of evil, all of the covering of death, one day, God is going to swallow up. It will not be anymore. He will swallow up death forever. and The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord, Isaiah says, has spoken. This is God's word on the matter. What God says he does. It's His way. Isaiah's way of saying, you can count on it. The Lord has said it. It will happen. Those are just two of the prophecies. But what about the confirmations? Well, we go to, to the New Testament again. John 3, Matthew 9, Matthew 25. Both John the Baptist and Jesus affirmed that a greater and better wedding day was coming. What is more, they identified Jesus as the greater and better bridegroom who was coming, who had come. So that those who put their faith, watch this, in him, those who promise or pledge themselves to him, will find that he's pledged himself to them so that they are in a new kind of relationship. So, for example, John the Baptist, just in John 3, the next chapter over, When he's asked about how how he feels about the fact that his ministry is declining and Jesus is making more disciples than he is, he answers in John 3 and says, I said, I told you, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me, rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I know what's happening when I hear Jesus speaking. I know what's happening when I see Jesus coming. The wedding, the last wedding, the final wedding, that that ultimate wedding is near at hand. It is coming. Therefore, and I love this, he says, John says, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. God's keeping his promise. Jesus is is the promise, the better bridegroom come to gather for himself a people, a people who would be his bride committed to him as his church. Later on in Matthew nine, Jesus speaks of himself in the same way when the disciples of John come to ask him, why don't we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? No. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, no doubt, when Jesus came and the disciples discovered who he was, they felt as if the wedding feast had already started for them while Jesus was with them. How couldn't they? But the reality is it hadn't. The wedding feast hadn't started, just the engagement period. Once Jesus was taken from them and crucified, no doubt, the joy they found in him seemed to be like every other joy fading. Degrading, needing an upgrade. Three days later, they got the upgrade they needed. (laughs) I love watching God work, don't you? This joy is just like every other joy I've ever had. I put my hopes in Jesus and now he's failed me. But three days later, (laughs) talk about an upgrade. Talk about an upgrade. He was raised from the dead. Of course, the resurrection, this ultimate joy upgrade showed that the joy Jesus gives is not only real but eternal, unfading. The life of those who have received him and his offer of new life in him, with him, is life in a kind of engagement period. If you really want to know what life is like, what it should be like if you're a follower of Jesus, you live between two times, his first coming and his second is a kind of like an engagement period. We we spend our lives learning more of him, learning to love him, trust him, honor him, follow him. We live knowing like a Middle Eastern bride always knew that one day he was going to, uh, that one day he will come for, for, for us to make us fully and finally his. And that's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, he says, watch, be careful. You're in, in the engagement period. You're in the betrothal period, but I'm coming. There is a, the day coming you better watch Jesus says for you know neither the day nor the hour when I will come for you so be ready be ready be ready could be any moment could be any moment when the bridegroom finally shows up for his bride why john ends his his the last few statements of the bible are basically captured in this come quickly lord jesus come get us come get us tired of groaning tired of groaning come quickly Look with me in Revelation 19, 6 to 10. Here we have the description of the great wedding feast. John writing, and he says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Let us express our joy is what they're saying. For the marriage of the lamb, Jesus has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted her to come to him pure. How did that happen? By the cross, by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. It was granted to her. It's not something she did for him. It was something he did for her to prepare her for this wedding day. She has herself ready. Her clothes are clean. She is ready to meet him. And the angel said to me, write this, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where the joy is. (laughs) So here John sees and hears a heavenly multitude praising God because the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast of Jesus is about to begin. The betrothal or engagement period has ended. The big day has come. The bridegroom and his entourage have made their gala procession to fetch the bride. And immediately, my mind goes to that passage at the end of Matthew where Jesus says, there is a day coming when, I, when the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. There is a day coming and he will appear. I will appear. And I will send my angels to the north and the south, the east and the west to gather up my people so that where I am they can be. There is coming a day when my entourage will arrive. The entourage of the bridegroom will come. His wedding party will be made of angels and they will be gathering his people from every corner of the face of the earth. And When this happens, He will have kept his great promise from John 14. Do you remember it? Verses 2 to 3. In my father's house. Are many, many rooms. If it were not so. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. And I will take you to myself. So that where I am. You may also be. I want you to hear those words. Those are the words of the bridegroom to his bride. On the day of their wedding, he will come. Now everyone together is gathered in the groom's father's house. Now in in Revelation 19 comes the wedding supper. A grand celebration feast with tables filled. Joy is everywhere to be found. So the wedding at Cana, loved ones, is a wedding that points to this wedding. A wedding that points to the last wedding, the best wedding, the greatest wedding this world has ever seen. It tells us that while we messed up, our original mandate here. In Christ, God gives both us and creation a second chance. The wedding at Cana says in powerful, powerful pictures that our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God who refuses to give up on people. He refuses to give up on his creation, and he He refuses to give up on the dream of a wedding that leads to joy. He does not give up on his dream people. He is the God of the second chance. He is the God of the third chance. He is the God of the fourth chance and the fifth chance and the sixth chance. You ask any true follower of Jesus why they love him sooner or later, they will tell you it is because he is the God of the second chance. He does not give up on his people. You may give up on you, he never will. So here's what I want you to see, where the opening chapters of the Bible tell the story of a joy lost, and Cana tells the story of joy lost and restored for a season. The final chapters of the Bible tell the story of joy reclaimed and joy restored forever. And that joy is reclaimed and restored with a new and better heaven and earth replacing the old and the old humanity transformed to become new. And all of this, the scripture says, starts with a wedding. And from that point comes a great adventure that never ends for those who belong to Jesus. So the wedding at Cana tells us, God is not done with us. God is not done with this earth. The wedding at Cana affirms that we can and do have real joy here. And while it does fade and does degrade and does leave us wanting an upgrade, it also points to something more, something better, something greater, to be brought by someone greater. That every joy we experience in this life, no matter how fading, points us to God's answer to our questions. What will become of us? What will become of our children? What will become of our world? In this world where joy fades and death is sure to follow what is left for us, the wedding at Cana gives us answers. The wedding at Cana points us to the fact that every joy we have in this world is but a sign, pointing to the endless unlimited joy that we can know later in Jesus at a wedding still to come every sunset and every sunrise, every smile on a newborn's face, every delight you have in warm friendship, every joy you experience with a word of encouragement, every delight you find is a pointer to a greater, richer, deeper joy still to come. Every joy here pleads with us to look there, reminds us that there is something more because He is not only the God of the second chance, but He is the God who persistently, consistently saves the best to last. Every joy we experience reminds us that the Heavenly Father is good. Reminds us that because he's good, he is holy and loving at the same time. Every joy we experience here points us to the fact that he's holy and he cannot and will not let evil and sin remain. And that means that the debt we created with our sin and evil has to be paid for. It has to be absorbed by someone It reminds us that because the Father is loving, He's willing to come and pay that penalty, that debt for us. And He did for us in His Son. Surely there's nothing that can give more joy than to know that someone loves you so deeply that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for you that you might know and have joy. What lay before those who receive this this one, this Jesus, is an eternity of unending God-centered joy paid for by the blood of Jesus. And the wedding feast to come is just the beginning. And I ask you this morning, Can you think of anything better than this? Loved ones, I want to say to you this morning, on those days dark and heavy, when you think things cannot get any worse, when the world seems to have lost its mind, when people cannot seem to be trusted, when joy cannot be found, remember, remember Cana, remember the wedding, remember that God is not any more satisfied with the way things are than you are. Remember that this sign at Cana offers a witness, a witness to what God has done to make purification real so that celebration might be eternal. Remember that this sign of Cana not only shows us what he has done, but points us to what he intends to do about this mess we are in. Jesus' mission is joy. Jesus' mission is joy restored. He has come so that all things might come back to him and back to his father. He has come to make for himself a people who will be his and will be with him forever. It all ends and then begins again with the last and greatest of weddings. And everyone who trusts in this Jesus belongs to him and his bride and will find and know one day the absolute and ultimate joy that only he can give. Not every person will be part of this wedding feast. Some will sadly be left outside wishing they could get in after refusing his gracious invitation. So I urge you, trust Christ. Trust Christ, love Christ, be a part of his bride. The wine, the food, the dancing, and the music here in our world are nothing compared to what Jesus makes possible in the life to come. And that, my friends, is precisely the point of the story of Jesus' first sign and the wedding at Cana. What will become of us? believers can say we know and it's all going to start with a wedding Lord God, for this grand view of history that your word lays out before us, we are so very grateful. To see the beginning and understand why things are the way they are. To see Christ in His coming. To be reminded of the way things should be, but aren't. To look ahead that the way things will be because of Jesus grants to us such courage, such confidence, such strength, such anticipation. We hardly know what to say except but the great crowd will one day say, Hallelujah! See what you have done. Oh God, God of a second chance, the God who will not give up on us, our world, or our weddings. this day. We hear you say again, come to me. All you who are weary, groaning, heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. God, in this room this morning, there are men and women, there are students who are weary of groaning, weary of wondering what will become of this world, weary of headlines, weary of personal failures, weary of relational fractures, weary who in this very moment are hearing you say, clearly come to me come to me I have more I have better old things become new with me joy lasts with me it doesn't fade it only gets better come to me you are made for me come to me come to me I have rest for you joy like you've never known today my prayer is they will accept your proposal of new life they will say yes to you and give all that they have all that they are all that they've done to you trusting you That they will be ready for the day when you come back they will spend the rest of their days here getting to know you better and love you more. Oh God, do that today. I pray. For Jesus' sake. And Father, thank you for the miracle, for the sign of the wedding at Cana. What it tells us It's just what we need to hear. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.